This Lord's Day, we consider again Gospel of Mark, and we are focusing upon verses 30 through 37. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. How do you describe a humble person? Calvin wrote this description of a humble person, which I believe is worth sharing with you. That man is truly humble who neither claims any personal merit in the sight of God, nor proudly despises brethren or aims at being thought superior to them, but reckons it enough that he is one of the members of Christ and desires nothing more than that the head alone should be exalted. From his commentary in Matthew 18.4. I believe Calvin has captured the essence of humility. For humility, dear ones, is a grace granted by God to believing sinners that respects both God and man. In respect to God, the humble person earnestly believes on the one hand that he is nothing apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, that God is everything. And in respect to man, the humble person sincerely believes that he is no better than the next person. For he sees himself simply as a beggar who was led by God's grace to the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone satisfies the hungering, the soul of a man. Dear ones, the grace of humility is not optional in the Christian life. In Matthew chapter 18, Verses 3 and 4, the Lord Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, although humility, like every other grace, freely given to us by God, is not perfected in this earthly life. Nevertheless, we must ask ourselves this question. Do we sincerely believe that we are nothing apart from Jesus Christ? And that the one true living God that's revealed in the Scriptures is everything. Do we sincerely believe that? Yes, we may be weak in the area of humility, but do we earnestly believe that? Do you also truly believe that you are what you are by the grace of God alone? And that you are not superior to others by your own gifts, by your own accomplishments, or by your own efforts? Today, dear ones, we shall take a serious look at the grace 
of humility as presented by Christ to his own ministers, the apostles. The main points for the sermon this Lord's Day are the following. First of all, the supreme example of humility from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. And secondly, the instructional lesson concerning humility from Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. Let us consider then the first main point, the supreme example of humility. Look with me at Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. After delivering the son who was possessed by the demon in Mark 9, verses 14 through 29, the Lord Jesus left the area of Caesarea Philippi in that most northern part of Palestine and began to make his way south with the ultimate goal and destination of Jerusalem, where in about six months, he would offer his life a ransom for many, those who were his people chosen from all eternity. And as he passed through Galilee with his disciples, the text says he did not want any to know of his being there as he went through the various places in Galilee. He didn't want people to know that he was there. Now, that might seem odd inasmuch as he was the Savior of men, that he would not want people to know that he was passing through their city, through their area, through their region. However, even the Lord, dear ones, did not spend all of his time in evangelism and public ministry. There was a time for teaching and healing the multitudes, but there was also a time to teach his disciples privately as well. And as we've seen in other occasions, there was a time for refreshment where the Lord withdrew from the multitudes. This was in fact the reason given for the secrecy in passing through Galilee according to Mark 3.31. For Mark 3.31 says, For he taught his disciples. In other words, he would not that any man should know it, that he was there. Why? Because he taught his disciples. He wanted to spend this time secretly, privately with his disciples. With his impending death on the horizon, he wanted to spend time with them concerning things that pertained 
to the gospel, to the commission that they would be given, so as, the, so as they would not, when this occurred, stumble to the point of falling away from the Lord. Likewise, dear ones, the minister of Christ must not only minister to the needy multitudes, but he must also, at times, let no one know that he is at home. At times, he must take his phone off of the hook. The same is true of elders. At times, he must simply put on the recording machine and take messages because he has his time to spend with the Lord as well. He has his time to spend with his little disciples, his family, as well. And so there are times in which the minister, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not available even as Jesus was not available to the masses. Because the minister's job is not only to the multitudes and to the masses or to the church at large, but also to his own growth in Christ, meeting with Christ, spending time in learning of Christ, as well as investing his life in his family. Well, what was it that Christ taught his disciples in private here? He continued to bring before the minds of the apostles the reason for their journey to Jerusalem, namely... His betrayal, His death, and His resurrection. You will recall that this is not the first time that the Lord has brought this particular subject to the attention of the disciples. In Mark 8.31, it says, And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And in that particular passage, you'll recall that Peter rebuked the Lord, saying, Lord, this cannot be so. And the Lord then rebuked Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou savorest not the things of God. You're not thinking of the kingdom of Christ. You're thinking of merely some temporal kingdom. You're merely thinking of temporal benefits here. You're not thinking of the ultimate goal of Christ's kingdom to bring in God's elect. To bring His kingdom to the ends of the earth. The three apostles, Peter, James, and John, you'll recall in Mark 9.4, on the Mount of Transfiguration, there appeared Moses and Elijah. And Luke 9.31, the parallel passage to Mark 9.4, tells us what what, uh, Moses and Elijah were discussing with the Lord, and which Peter, James, and John no doubt overheard. They were discussing his upcoming, his impending death. 
So there had been very specific ways in which the attention of Christ's death and his resurrection had been brought to the disciples. I would submit to you, beloved, that here is the supreme example of humility in which to follow. The humility of the Son of God, the sinless and exalted Son of God, humbled Himself to be betrayed by Judas, to be betrayed by the Jews, to be crucified as a cursed criminal upon a shameful cross, that He might in order, that He might be highly exalted through His resurrection. This humiliation and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ is so clearly spelled out for us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, where we read in the context that the Apostle Paul is teaching the Philippians about humility and not esteeming themselves higher than others. Looking out for the interests of others rather than simply for our own interests. Paul says, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Who has, dear ones, ever stooped so low or given up so much in order to serve such undeserving and unworthy beings? I ask, was the Lord Jesus forced to do so? Was the Lord Jesus forced to stoop this low? Absolutely not. He freely lowered Himself in order to minister to us in our wretched, helpless estate. A wretched and helpless state which we ourselves deserve to live in and to be condemned in. For we, through our hateful rebellion, had turned against our most benevolent Creator. There was nothing in us, beloved. There was nothing within us that compelled Him to lower and to humble Himself in order to save us. If anything, our sin should have immediately called down the righteous condemnation of God upon us forever and ever. 
No, it was not our worthiness. It was all of His worthiness. It was His love and His mercy and His grace that brought Him to earth in order to be betrayed to death by His own disciple Judas and by His own people, the Jews, to whom He had showed such kindness. Dear ones, if you do not understand and love the humiliation of Christ, you will never know what it is to be truly humble. If you'd rather just simply pass over this part of the text, you'll never know what it is to be truly humble before God and before others. In fact, you cannot be unless you truly understand this text. That Jesus was betrayed. That He was crucified because He humbled Himself for you and me. If Christ's cross, dear ones, is not something you are willing to take up yourself upon your own shoulders and daily to bear and to learn joyfully what it means to die to self, then you will never be truly humble. If Christ's betrayal by His own does not become that which you yourself are willing also to bear, that you are willing to be betrayed by those who are dear to you for the sake of Christ. You will never truly know and understand humility. For if Christ's betrayal and death is, is an example to us of humility... And through His betrayal and death, we have life. How, dear ones, can we call ourselves Christians if we are not willing to learn these truths from Christ? To learn by His example. We cannot obviously suffer in order to forgive others their sins as Christ did. His suffering was unique. But we can follow in His footsteps and be willing to be betrayed and to suffer for the sake of Christ. Herein we learn what true humility is in lowering ourselves, humbling ourselves in order to serve Christ and to serve others. Is it easy? Is it a comfortable path in which to go and to follow Christ? No, it's not. In fact, it is very uncomfortable. In fact, it is painful. In fact, it is a life of death. For we must die, dear ones, in order to live. We must suffer in order to be glorified. We must suffer the discomfort of this world in order to enjoy the comfort of the Lord Jesus Christ. But by the grace of God, dear ones, 
Though it is impossible for us to walk this path of humility, by the grace of God we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. With man it is not possible, but with God it is possible. Dear ones, you need not cut yourself with knives or rocks. You need not abuse yourself in order to receive the grace of humility. You simply need to take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is humility personified. You simply need, dear ones, in your life to learn of the humble Savior and to grow in Christ. It is through, dear ones, His humiliation that Christ entered into His exaltation at His resurrection. And it is through our humiliation that we will enter into our exaltation. And apart from our humiliation, we will not enter into our exaltation. It cannot happen. It will not happen. It is ordained. It is the ordained way to exaltation through humiliation. Dear ones, the gospel has not been truly told if we furthermore leave out the exaltation of Jesus Christ, His resurrection. We have not given the full gospel if we merely talk about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. For many false teachers of false religions have suffered death for their cause, but only Christ was gloriously resurrected from the dead never to die again. His exaltation, beloved, is a certain guarantee that His humiliation was true, faithful, and received by the Father as a sufficient payment for His chosen bride. Do you want to know whether the bride is acceptable before the Father? Look to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not in the grave. There we see that the Lord has received the payment which Christ offered for His chosen bride. Just remember, no bodily resurrection of Christ, no forgiveness of sin, and no eternal life for men, regardless of what they may believe Christ to have accomplished upon the cross. The text says in Mark chapter 9, verse 32, that the apostles did not understand what Christ taught about His betrayal and death. And we ask ourselves, why didn't they understand what the Lord was saying here? It was very clear. The Lord said that He was going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and that he was going to die. He was going to be killed. Not simply die, but to be killed. To be crucified. Why didn't they understand? Well, let me give you what I believe three reasons why they did not understand 
what Christ said. First of all, they didn't understand because of their own natural blindness and dullness of mind to understand what is spiritual. I believe that the apostles were certainly, except for Judas Iscariot, the apostles were regenerate. They did believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in many ways, they were yet carnal and fleshly in their understanding. You see, it is the spiritual man who is led of the Spirit, who understands the things of the Spirit of God. And the apostles here at this particular point in time, which leads us to the second reason, were so filled with the temporal kingdom that they couldn't see Christ's death and resurrection. They couldn't understand how Christ could be betrayed and how he could be crucified. It didn't fit into their, their preconception about the kingdom of God. They were anticipating a mere temporal kingdom wherein Christ, the Messiah, would reign over Israel from Jerusalem. And the third reason, then, why they could not understand is because of their own unwillingness to hear of the sufferings of Christ, which would obviously also entail their own sufferings. If Christ suffers, they naturally would conclude if the Master suffers, then we're likely to suffer as well. And so due to these particular reasons, they did not understand. And dear ones, likewise, we will suffer a lack of understanding of God's revealed will for our lives. We'll, uh, we'll not understand as we ought the Scripture if we are carnal and fleshly, if our mind is not attuned to the Spirit of God, if we are not comparing spiritual things with spiritual things, if we are not spending time in prayer and in His Word, if we will be dull of hearing, dull of understanding as well. And if our minds are fixed upon a temporal kingdom, if our minds are fixed upon this earth, we will not understand the great and powerful and mighty things of God. And thirdly, if we, dear ones, are unwilling to suffer for Christ, we will avoid every interpretation of the Scripture which would lead us to that conclusion. We will seek to make our life as comfortable as we possibly can because we want to avoid whatever at whatever cost suffering. And it will lead us to all kinds of misconceptions. The text also says in Mark 9.32 that the apostles were afraid, afraid, afraid to ask the Lord about what He had said concerning His betrayal and death. And again, we ask why. Why were they afraid to ask the Lord? Well, perhaps they feared, first of all, because they didn't want to be reproved by Christ, as Peter was. We mentioned that Peter was reproved back in Mark 8, 31, 
when he not only questioned, asked the Lord, what do you mean? But he actually rebuked the Lord. But perhaps that particular occasion was indelibly imprinted upon their mind. And as a result, they did fear to even question and ask the Lord further about that. Fear of rebuke. Should we fear, dear ones, the reproofs and the rebuke of the Lord? Should that be the attitude of the Christian? I dare say, dear ones, we ought not to fear, but actually we ought to welcome the rebuke and the reproof of the Lord. The rebukes, the reproofs, the chastening of the Lord indicates that we truly belong unto Him. Again, is it comfortable? Is it in and of itself enjoyable? No. But what does it yield? The peaceable fruit of righteousness. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 141, verse 5. His attitude with regard to reproof. Not only from the Lord, but even through God's people unto Himself. Let the righteous smite me, it shall be a kindness. And let him reprove me, it shall be an excellent oil, which shall not break my head. For yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. You see, this should be our attitude as those who want to grow in the Lord. Where we have erred, where we are wrong, Lord, rebuke me. Reprove me. Show me the error of my ways. Let me, Lord, not continue in self-deception and walk aimlessly down this path thinking that everything is okay. Reprove me and rebuke me for Thy name's sake. Show me my sin. That ought to be our attitude as those who desire to grow in true humility before the Lord. But perhaps they feared also knowing the truth because, as we indicated earlier, because of what it would cost them. They saw the implications. And so they didn't want to know more about what that meant. They may have preferred to remain in ignorance rather than to be further instructed in the truth in order to avoid that suffering. Thinking that they might, because of their ignorance, avoid that suffering. But dear ones, ignorance does not bring about avoiding suffering. If anything, it only leads to greater suffering. How we also may fall, dear ones, into the trap of thinking, Lord, Keep me ignorant, for it is a much more comfortable path. Keep me ignorant, because it requires less of me. I'm less accountable if I am more uh, ignorant. However, the one who is truly humble does not cry out, Lord, keep me ignorant. 
the one who is truly humble before the Lord, cries out, Teach me thy ways, O Lord. Lead me in the paths of truth and righteousness, whatever it may cost me. For I desire at whatever cost to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a truly humble soul who can pray that prayer. The second main point from our text is the instructional lesson concerning humility. From Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37, we read the following. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. Christ and his disciples came to Capernaum where Peter and Andrew resided, according to Mark 1.29. This may have been the home into which the Lord now went, and it may have even been the very child of Peter that was placed in the midst of them. We read in Mark 9.33 that the Lord privately asked his disciples, what was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? What were you debating about? It, apparently, as they traveled throughout Galilee, there were times in which the Lord allowed the disciples to linger behind. And it was probably one of these times that uh, they got into this particular dispute or this debate while the Lord walked on ahead, no doubt desiring to meditate to pray, to think uh, even himself upon these things. But the Lord, being the Son of God, perceived and knew that they had been disputing about a particular issue, namely the issue of who should be the greatest. <clears throat> and so when the Lord put the question to them, the Scripture says they held their silence perhaps out of a sense of shame at having been caught talking about such a question. In the parallel account in Matthew 18, verse 1, it actually says that the disciples came to Christ and put to Him the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Here in this particular text, in Mark, Chapter 9, it says that the Lord asked them, what were you discussing? What were you disputing amongst yourself on the way? How do we reconcile what Mark and Matthew have to say here? 
Well, I would suggest that the reconciliation of these two texts is simply that the Lord put the question to them, what were you talking about along the way? At first, initially, they were silent. Subsequently, they came to the Lord and asked Him the question themselves. themselves. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, if this whole matter, dear ones, does not demonstrate the sinful weakness and the frailty of the apostles, I don't know what does. If it were not so sad, it would almost be comical that they were actually debating amongst themselves, not simply thinking it. You know, it's, it's bad enough that we would think that I am the greatest. I will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They were not simply thinking about it. They were actually debating and disputing about it amongst themselves. Here were grown men, yea, even the chosen apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, debating over which one of them would hold the number one position in Christ's kingdom. You know, even most Christians who fall into the snare of the devil to think of themselves better than they ought do not engage in some debate as to why they believe that to be the case. Even though the disciples did not understand what Christ meant about his death and resurrection, they did not understand they did understand that something very, very significant was about to happen. There was something that was going to happen in Jerusalem. They understood something uh, about the significance of this trip to Jerusalem. And that's something that they, no doubt, took to revolve around the establishment of an earthly political kingdom in which Christ would reign from Jerusalem as the king of Israel. And the big question for them was, who would be Christ's prime minister? Peter, who was one of the three within the inner circle and had as the spokesman for the group declared Christ to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Would He be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Or perhaps James or John, who were the other two disciples who were in the inner circle and who Jesus called the sons of thunder. Perhaps they debated on that basis. They would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Or Andrew, who was the first follower of Christ among the apostles and then went and, and fetched his brother Peter and brought him to Christ. Or perhaps Matthew, who had been a tax collector and would have some knowledge of political policy. Or Judas Iscariot, who was the treasurer amongst the disciples. Or Simon the Zealot, 
who had been associated with a political party dedicated to the overthrow of the Romans. Apparently, various of the disciples gave reasons why he should be the prime minister in the kingdom and debated and disputed the point. But they did not even stop at debating amongst themselves but even their shame at which initially they were silent when Christ put the question to them, even that shame was shed as they come and ask Christ, who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Amazing. It ought to give us some hope, dear ones. Christ wasn't finished with the apostles. Weak and infirmed in soul as they were, Christ wasn't finished with them. And Christ is not finished with you nor with me. The Lord will continue His work of sanctification in all of His people, even if they are as weak and frail as these apostles. And He will, in time, He will bring them to the place of actually glorifying them with His Son on that final day. And I would have you, dear ones, consider again the patience of the Lord here as He tenderly sits down to instruct His ministers in training them about the grace of humility. How would you react, parents, if you heard your own children arguing about who was the greatest? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. How would you react to that? Or how would you react if they actually came and put the question to you? Mom, Dad, who's the greatest here? Me or my brother and my sister? Who's the greatest? Now, I won't ask you or I won't suppose I know what your response would be to that particular question. But in your own mind, compare what your reaction might be to that question or to hearing that dispute amongst your children and what the reaction of Christ is in Mark 8.35. And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and the servant of all. He sat down, and he called his disciples to himself. He doesn't publicly embarrass them, and expose their sin to the multitudes. No doubt had they had this particular debate amongst the multitudes and it become that kind of a scandal, the Lord would have publicly rebuked them. For 1 Timothy 5.20 says that those who sin before all must be be rebuked before all. The Lord did not react in a fit of rage. Are you guys just plain stupid? If the Lord was patient with these weak, 
but foolish disciples, will he not also be with us as we stumble along the way? For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I would ask you husbands, how patient are you in teaching your wives? Do you have the patience of the Lord here? in instructing your wives, instructing your children? Or do you fly off the handle when a particular question appears to be beneath you? Or even if the question you think is just absurd or foolish, do you fly off the handle? Do you put the person down? Do you embarrass your wife? Do you embarrass your children in front of others? Or do you try to correct, to instruct in the way that will be most edifying, most helpful to them? The patience of the Lord here, dear ones, is a further incentive to our growth in humility. We want to be humble. We want to grow in humility when we see what kind of a Savior we have. And we continue to understand through this Gospel of Mark and we see countless times how the Lord deals with His disciples. We want to be beneath that kind of a Christ and a Savior. Here is a God that we can follow who will not crush us and destroy us but who, even in our affliction, will love us and be near us and will help us. Well, here the Lord first instructs His disciples by precept in verse 35, and then the Lord instructs His disciples by outward sign in verses 36 and 37. Let us consider how the Lord instructs His disciples by precept. The Lord says, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Does this particular verse mean there are two possible, I think, interpretations of what Christ says here? Does this verse mean if any man sinfully desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all? Or does this verse mean if any man righteously desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and the servant of all? In other words, is there a righteous way, a righteous desire to be first? Well, I would first of all indicate that the if clause here, now we find in verse 35, if any man desire to be first, is a condition of reality, like we mentioned in the last sermon, which actually 
from Christ's perspective means this. If any man desire to be first, and certain men do desire to be first. It's a statement, it's, it's a condition of reality that such is the case. Certain men do desire to be first. Well, that could certainly be righteously desire to be first or sinfully desire to be first. That doesn't answer the question. But I would submit to you that the latter is the proper interpretation. If any man righteously desire to be first is what Christ is actually saying here. There is in a very real sense that we ought to desire to be honored by Christ. That we ought to seek the reward, the well done, thou faithful and good servant from Christ. There is, in that sense, something that we all ought to desire to be first, to grow in Christ's kingdom, to be all that we possibly can be, to be used by the Lord Jesus Christ in furthering His kingdom. You see, this is Christ's answer to the disciples' question about greatness. Who is the greatest? Jesus is in an essence saying the person who is the greatest in Christ's kingdom is the one who makes himself last of all and is the servant of all. He's the greatest in Christ's kingdom. And if that's what you desire, then you will lower yourself. You will humble yourself if you want to be great in Christ's kingdom. You must be the servant of all. Now remember, he is not merely speaking by way of general principle to all of us who know and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, but he's also speaking in a very specific and particular way to the apostles as ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that reason, I would especially note that this has reference to elders and to ministers of Christ in their calling. Because, dear ones, if in fact we would be used as ministers and elders in Christ's kingdom, we may know a lot. We may have studied a lot. We may know the languages, uh, Greek, Hebrew, Latin, and and many other languages, so that we can read these things in, in the various languages in which they were written. We may have studied countless hours about doctrine, but unless we are humble, unless we are servants, it profits nothing. Just like it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, concerning love. Though we know all things, Though we know all mysteries, but if we have not love, it profits nothing. Likewise, if we have not humility, if we are not servants, it profits nothing. That's not to say that humility in and of itself is all that's required. We need to grow in our knowledge as well, but we need this humility if we would be faithful ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christ, I would submit to you here, abolishes the supremacy of any one of the apostles over the other. Or any minister over the other. Thus, he destroys here the primacy of Peter and the papacy as flowing from Peter. This would have been, dear ones, a most opportune time to explain to the disciples that Peter was to be the visible head of the church if such were the case. But the Lord not only does not teach it here, but believe it or not, this same issue is yet to come up two more times before Christ dies. Who is the greatest? Still, they have not gotten the point. Who was the greatest? Two more times. In Mark 10.35 and in Luke 22.24. But here, the Lord puts down the papacy and the Lord puts down prelacy, a hierarchy of office amongst the ministry. And he establishes the equality of ministers one to another. How ministers and elders must especially be aware of the sin of desiring preeminence over their brethren. And for this reason, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. So, ministers have authority to take oversight over the flock which is committed to them. Not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Not lording it over their consciences, that is, not imposing upon them things which the Word of God itself does not authorize, but rather setting an example before them, walking in all faithfulness before them, in humility of mind, just as Christ has set an example for us to walk, so ministers and elders should set an example for the flock to walk accordingly. The flock should be able to look at their shepherds. They should be able to say, there's an example to follow. Not merely in knowledge, but an example in humility, lowliness of mind, and a willingness to help and to serve. The greatest ministers and elders are the greatest servants in putting aside all selfish ambition and rivalry. Yes, the spirit of rivalry exists amongst ministers and elders. Ministers and elders are tempted by way of vain rivalry, competition. And this, dear ones, must be put down in our lives if we are to be effective in the kingdom of Christ. how different this all is in the world. You know, in the world, if you want to be first, 
then you've got to step all over everybody to get to that first position. You've got to, you've got to be willing to hurt others in a sinful way. You've got to be willing to cheat a little, to not play by the rules that we find in the Scripture, in the world, and if you want to get to the top. Well, again, that's not what the Word of God calls us to do as Christians. But does that mean that as Christians we ought not to strive to be the best that we can in our place of employment, in our business? That we ought to not to, to seek and endeavor to climb the ladder within the particular company that we're working in? Of course not. The point is that all that we seek for, all that we do in order to be successful ought to be to the glory of Christ. How can we bring glory to Christ? We may actually say that taking that next step up the ladder will make me less effective for the glory of Christ. Therefore, I won't take that step. It will compromise certain principles or put me in a position where I will be in a compromised position or something of that nature. And in such a case, it is always, how can I be most effective in the kingdom of Christ? How can I serve the Lord? How can I help and serve others? And finally, the Lord instructs by an outward sign in Mark 9, 36-37, where the Lord says, or the Scripture says, And He took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when He had fallen, uh, taken him in His arms, He said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in My name receiveth Me, and whosoever shall receive Me receiveth not Me, but him that sent Me. The Lord takes and embraces a little child in His arms. This was obviously a child small enough to be embraced within Christ's arms. And yet, in Luke 9.47, the parallel passage says that this child was able to stand behind, beside Christ. Perhaps a child uh, about the age of what we would call a toddler. And now, although we might think, uh, you know, toddlers certainly are not perfect, they're not sinless, why would the Lord use this little toddler, as it were, as an example of humility? Well, again, not because they're perfect in humility. But in certain respects, a toddler certainly does not have the same characteristics that we see in adults. A toddler is not puffed up about his gifts, his graces, his beauty, or he doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about his rank or his status. The toddler of a king will not choose to avoid the toddler of a peasant, nor despise the toddler of a peasant as inferior to himself. Furthermore, little children, little toddlers, easily forget the wrongs that are done to them by others. They do not hold grudges 
characteristic of little children. They move on. And so, dear ones, are we to be like a little toddler in these respects if we would enter into the kingdom of heaven? We must not be concerned, preeminently concerned about our gifts, our graces, our beauty, or our rank in comparison to others. Certainly we should seek to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ and in that respect seek to be great in the kingdom of Christ. But we ought not to compare ourselves to others in such a way that we look down our noses at others, that we think little of other brethren in our midst. One last question as we close this Lord's Day. How do we practically stir up the grace of humility in our souls? Let me give you four suggestions as we conclude this Lord's Day. First of all, we earnestly seek the Lord for the manifestation of humility in our lives. Anything that you would seek to exemplify and manifest in your life must become a sincere and fervent expression in prayer. Not a casual expression in prayer, but one over which you spend much time beseeching the Lord. Lord, grant me humility. Grant that I would not be defensive at thy reproofs. Grant that I would not belittle others in order to put myself up and make myself look good. Grant, Lord, that I would be humble before Thee and recognize that I am what I am by the grace of God alone and that I would be a servant to others. Secondly, we, if we would stir up the grace of humility in our souls, we must labor to know our sins and weaknesses and to earnestly grieve over them. We must not casually pass over our sins and our weaknesses, but we must look them straight in the face. We must recognize them. We must see them for what they are, that they are a violation of God's revealed will. They are a violation of His commandments. They are contrary to the nature of Christ. But on the other hand, dear ones, Still on the same point, we must not be overly preoccupied with our own sins and weaknesses and frailties, lest we fall into the opposite extreme where we are only and always grieving and sorrowing, but never moving beyond that to enjoy Jesus Christ through His grace. A humble person is not one who is always belittling himself in every possible way, condemning himself in every possible way. You see, that is as much of a preoccupation with self as is the opposite extreme where one is pouring all kinds of accolades upon himself. 
either extreme, dear ones, will keep us from true humility. And in conjunction with that, dear ones, if we would be truly humble, we must avoid all self-pity. We must avoid, dear ones, feeling sorry for ourselves. Because when we do so, again, recognize that is not humility to feel sorry for yourself, to wallow in self-pity. That is preoccupation with self. That is not the characteristic of humility. Thirdly, if we would stir up the grace of humility in our souls, we must look to Christ. Not only look to ourselves to see our own sins and weaknesses, but we must look from there. We must look to Christ. We must look to Christ for His grace to help us, to sustain us. We must look to Christ and His example and how He being the Son of God, came down and suffered that we might be saved. Who as the Master put on the towel and washed His own disciples' feet. We must look to Christ. And lastly, we must embrace the promises of Christ if we would be truly humble We must not, dear ones, merely read them. We must not merely quote them by memory, but we must embrace them. We must believe that they are true. I leave you with one promise to meditate upon in this regard from 2 Peter 1, verse 3, where it says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us glory and virtue. Do you believe, this is a promise, do you believe that the Lord has already purchased for you in His death all grace that you need? that He has purchased already the grace of humility for you. It is a purchased gift and possession already that belongs to you if you trust and embrace Jesus Christ. Do you trust His promise that that is the case? You see, that is what we should do if we would grow in humility, is look to the promises of God. The Lord purchased that grace for me and by His grace I and by faith in Christ I will go and I will take from that depository which Christ has purchased for me the grace I need. It is there. Dear ones, it is waiting for you to simply draw on that grace that has already been purchased for you according to the promise of God. The Lord grant us that grace to stir up the grace of humility in our souls. Please stand with me in prayer.
Our Heavenly Father, we do come before Thee, having heard from the throne of grace today, having heard Thou speak unto us by Thy Spirit concerning our sin of pride, our sin of self-conceit and vainglory and and preoccupation with self and, and ambition and rivalry and competition that is unholy. We ask our Father that Thou would forgive us of all of these sins. That, O Lord our God, we would not merely reflect upon these sins, but that we would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, look to Him, look to His power for us to overcome these sins, look to His example to follow, lay hold of the promises which are ours in Jesus Christ. We pray, our God, that Thou would make of us a truly humble people, that it would not be a passing thought because the minister preached from it this Lord's day, but that, O Lord, to be like Christ in being humble would be indeed that for which we strive, and that we would strive, O Lord, to be great in the kingdom of Christ, to be honored by the Lord. We ask our Father that Thou would grant these desires unto our hearts for the sake of Christ our Savior. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.